0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. A few years ago, a man came into my life who was struggling with alcoholism and his road to recovery. He looked to me for pastoral support, and it was an honor and a fearsome responsibility to walk alongside him for a season. In time, he introduced me to others in his world who were also struggling with addiction, with alcohol mainly, but also drugs, sex, and pornography, to where eventually, over the ensuing months, the Lord led others into my life, struggling with addiction of one form or another. During that time, I attended my first AA meeting, not for me, but accompanying someone else to AA, and I even fielded one late night call once where one of these people handed over the second bottle of vodka before he could drain it as well. In this ministry, I witnessed two powerful realities and learned one major lesson. First, addiction is like that proverbial scene from a Hollywood movie. Once you fall into it, it's like a bottomless pit of quicksand. Before you know it, you might be up to your neck, and every effort of your own to climb out can suck you deeper and deeper and deeper into it. For the addict, one drink, one hit, one click, is never enough. And fighting harder and harder on your own to resist the urge almost makes those urges grow even stronger and come back more powerfully the next time. But I also witnessed a second and more wonderful reality. If the person struggling with addiction finally recognizes The futility of their condition abandons their efforts, their struggle on their own terms, and in faith reaches out from the mire to the hand of the Lord, the Lord is good and gracious to reach down, to lift them up, and in His powerful, compassionate hand to set them instead on a good and solid rock. For them, he truly is, as I prayed at the beginning, their rock and their redeemer. To rescue them from the miry bog of addiction and to set their feet finally on that ground, they need his power and his will to come and take over their own. And the Lord gives them that gift of his own to where his own will and his power now is transferred and given to the weak who are incapable of rescuing themselves. Amongst the community of addicts, this recognition, if they're really in recovery, is more powerful than anything I've ever witnessed in my ministry. And I learned this crucial lesson, too. You know, there are definitely more or less addictive personalities, and research supports some genetic bases that might make some folks more prone to alcoholism or other sorts of addictions. but. I can also attest to the reality of the human heart, which Saint Augustine so powerfully describes when he prays, Lord, our hearts are restless until they truly rest in you. That same restlessness that can lead you and me into sin in trying to sate that desire, to try to fill that God-shaped void in our lives with anything that just we might find we too are prone to a certain kind of addiction. You see, there is a sense in which all of us, me and you, each one of us has an addiction problem. So I am here to confess this morning, and I invite you to as well. Hi, my name is Steve, and I'm a Cineholic. You see, (laughs) Cineholism, is rooted, I think, in an even deeper condition of the heart, namely self-aholism. The root of every sin is our vain attempt to make self the Lord of our lives. We look for life and that feeling of being alive in pleasures of all sorts rather than in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and one true giver of life. And we seek our glory rather than the glory of the Father and we can end up sacrificing everything to our own destruction in our addiction to self. That, I believe, is the reality Paul is confronting in these chapters of Romans that we are currently in. Starting at the end of chapter five in verse 20, Paul confronts us with the full depth of the human sin problem. But he insists, quote, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. The reality of God's saving grace in Christ Jesus is that it's the only real cure for the sin addicted. We need that saving hand to reach down and to lift us out. But just like the addict, the desires, the temptation to sin doesn't just evaporate and go away when we accept that helping hand from Jesus. No, immediately then in chapter six in the following verses, Paul recognizes the temptation. Once you have accepted Christ's free grace of, gift of grace, an immense burden is, yes, immediately lifted from your shoulders. You can experience a freeing lightening of the weight of guilt and shame. So you can initially experience, as Jesus in our gospel reading says, that his yoke is indeed easy, and your burden is now light. But guess what? don't take any confidence in yourself because that very feeling of freedom can be just the wedge that the world, the flesh, and the devil need to lure us back into the mire of sin, to keep us under the thrall of some sin in our lives because we can now be deluded into believing, well, if I sin, I can always get that helping hand again, God's forgiveness and God's grace. In fact, In the churches that Paul wrote to throughout his epistles, there's routinely he is uh, confronting them about those who take their liberty in Christ as liberty to sin, be it sexual immorality, greed, and all sorts of other conditions. They were living according to what theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer would later call cheap grace, a crossless form of pseudo-Christian living where you experience grace as merely like a get-out-of-jail-free card, and not that rock-solid ground you need each and every day to keep from sliding back into the quicksand of sin. That's where we ended last week at the beginning of Romans 6, where Paul asks the powerful rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means and he goes on to confront us with the reality of the new identity that we have in Jesus Christ through our baptism. Because you see, in the waters of baptism, we go down into Christ's grave with him where he once died to sin and to death, and we now have to. We are given the glorious resurrection power to live with and for and through the resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen? Our baptism, as Deacon John put it last week, is every bit as real as a wedding vow that unites a man and a wife. You are no longer your own through your baptism, but you're united forever to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you can break those vows. Yes, you are prone to wander. But you can also draw upon your baptismal identity as a source of grace and strength, now a new confidence for living and walking faithfully with Jesus in that road of recovery from sin. As Deacon John also put it, we know now who we are, whose we are. So in a way, the struggle with sin is finally game on. We now actually have the means at our disposal to confront the problem of sin, whereas before we were powerless, and now we're not. Thanks be to God. But that's just where Paul left us in verse 11. It gets even better. You see, in our passage for today, verses 12 through 23, Paul gives us three ways that we can then find our footing of that rock-solid living in sin recovery. Three different ways that we can now find our footing finally and walk in faithfulness with Christ. Now, you might have noticed in our Roman series that Paul kind of is a little circular in his reasoning sometimes. He maybe kind of comes back on certain points. He's a little confusing. You're kind of like, where is he going now? And I think he kind of traces a circular path sometimes because he wants to come back and reinforce certain points at the end that he had at the beginning. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna actually take the third of three points first (laughs) and then work our way back through points one and two, but three is actually one and now two is actually two and uh, anyway, you you get my point. You see, Paul has five different verses here that he begins with the word four. So five fours, three points. Make sense? Five, four, three, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. If you have your pew Bible, take it and you can open up and follow along with me here in, on page 943. Because the third point, this sort of third reality that Paul confronts us with and helps to try to equip us to fight sin, is he does confront us with the horror of our condition right? The reality of being enslaved to sin itself can motivate us to walk in newness of life, in righteous living. Paul, you see, in his original context was addressing two different kinds of people who had experienced this kind of thing. On the one hand, there were those pagans in the Roman church who had come, indeed, out of a deep life of enslavery to sin, But then there are also those others who maybe had been raised in Christ, they were already believers, but now Paul's confronting them because they've slipped back into the quicksand of sin. Those two people, whether you're just the newly redeemed pagan or you're the one who's followed Christ for a long time but still struggling with the power of sin, you might want to be confronted with the full horror of the condition here. He does not want either one of them to walk the path of cheap grace. Because see, we are now freed from condemnation and we can live free of guilt and shame and lean into that. We don't have to take the get out of jail card free approach to our faith. I confess I found myself personally tempted by that way of living in my 20s. I had been raised a good Christian boy in a good Christian home who went to a good Christian few- school a few blocks from here. I did not drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. But three weeks after graduation, I was on a plane to Europe, and I found myself a dashing young single graduate student living in Belgium, enjoying the fine brew made by Belgian monks and surrounded by very different very European sexual mores as well. The pagans, you see, were all in. But even some of my Christian friends were taken in by it too. They told me they wanted to break free from our repressive evangelical upbringing. And so we're sowing their wild oats, so to speak. Now I confess, I kind of looked on with some envy. I dabbled a bit in things I myself shouldn't have really done during a period of my life where I later had to confess to my eventual wife. But mostly I just kind of looked on at others who went much further, but I looked on with envy. I had a heart condition that was, frankly, craving after sin. In one sense, we all in that stage felt a certain freedom. I mean, freedom from righteousness and its demands can feel pretty liberating, right? And acting on it can feel really good. We feel certain passionate longings for pleasure and for comfort. We might reach for various substances to provide it. We long for compassion and intimacy, especially at times of loneliness and isolation. And sexual intimacy is one of the most powerful and tangible ways to feel that need met for a moment, for a certain period of time. Whether it was my envy or their action, Sin is an ensnaring, enslaving trap. You see, I also watched a number of people around me go very, very deeply down the path of freedom for their own desires. I witnessed people destroy their lives with alcohol and drugs, some sinking deeper and deeper into mental illness even. I also witnessed folks pursue the intense pleasures of intimacy, only to leave behind them a string of broken relationships, and each successive one never really truly provided them what they were looking for. This is why Paul stresses here at the end of this paragraph with a second for, for the wages of sin is death. A life free in regards to righteousness is actually only apparent freedom. He says in verse 21, For the end of all those things, of all that pursuit of what may look good and pleasing at the time, the end of those things is death. Another four. You see, each time we try to satisfy our desires with finite human things, the pleasures of this world, the temptations of the flesh, or the allures of the devil, we only get deeper ensnared by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our desires are not really satisfied. They only grow and grow and grow until they can consume us. Paul wants to confront us with that reality, the full horror of it, because that in one way might motivate us to flee from sin, to see it for the living death it is, and us for the, if you will, sin zombies that we become, the walking dead in sin. For the wages of sin is death, he concludes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He then pleads with us, you who have died with Christ in the waters of baptism, you have something so much better in store for you. Both when we eventually see Jesus face to face, but also right here, right now. That's then, let's go back now to the first of these paragraphs and the first of the fours. So our second point point—it's Paul's first in verse 12. There Paul's, Paul pleads, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That is, as we've just seen, the living death, the zombie existence, if you will, of a life of freedom from righteousness to live according to the flesh. Instead he admonishes us, present yourselves to God as those who have been bought brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You have been brought from death into life through Jesus Christ. Now you are not free from righteousness, but free for it. You see, Paul's point here is that righteousness, in a positive sense, also has its own allure. Fall in love with righteousness. It's actually good and freeing before and on your own power, you were actually powerless to live otherwise. Maybe the best you could do was motivate yourself with a fear of being caught, with the fear of your own destruction, but the Lord Jesus now gives you grace for a new life. So present your members for a better life. By members here, Paul means our very hands and feet, our eyes our mind, our heart, our will, every part of us, we can now direct heavenward to the end goal of righteousness, because you can now pursue righteousness with Christ Jesus' resurrection life flowing through your veins. It's one of the reasons why I love how our worship here at Res is a full-bodied experience— drawing upon every aspect of ourselves. And that's precisely the sense here that Paul has, that you can take the very same members that you had directed towards sin, and you can direct them now towards righteousness. Try it. (laughs) Try and see the beauty of living honestly and transparently with desires that are disciplined by holy living. And you'll see, it's freedom. It's beautiful. Paul then comes up with another four, or uh, fourth of the four fours. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Living into that grace, leaning into that grace here, means you will no longer be under the dominion of sin. That's both in sort of the sense of you will not. Like shall not. So he's saying here, sin shall not have dominion over you, like an actual present reality. But there's also a futural sense to this. Will not points to that now and not yet reality of our redemption in Christ. Sin doesn't, its bonds have been now decisively broken in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we eventually… When we shall see our Lord face to face, we shall truly be set free from the grip of sin. I love that line in our Eucharistic canon and how it concludes our Eucharistic celebration prayer. Do you want to see the Lord face to face? Don't you want that? Well, guess what? Lean into his grace, and you'll begin to start to see him right now. It's not something you have to wait for it can happen right now. Final point, final four. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That's verse 19. Paul, in this uh, second paragraph, our third point, begins that paragraph actually in verse 15 with with kind of a rhetorical question. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Instead, he says, don't consider yourself a slave to sin. Consider yourself a slave to righteousness. Here we are at the heart of Paul's entire purpose in writing the letter to the Romans. Romans. Back in Romans 1, he writes to them as Paul, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. He's already experienced this reality, and what he wants for them, for those, he says in verse 5, whom have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. The key phrase here is the obedience of faith. We're right in the middle of this now, because what Paul says, if you want to truly be free from sin, you now lead and lead into a life of obedience. Paul introduces himself as a slave, but he encourages us, challenges us, become a slave just like me. I think it's a little strange, right, for obedience and faith to go together Right, sometimes we separate those things because we think like faith is believing certain things about God, and obedience is then following God's commandments, but we don't really have the two connected together. But Paul is saying in a healthy, living, breathing, Christ-like faith, they go together. Because if you really confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that changes absolutely everything about the way you live. Obedience is not optional, right? If you say that creed with me after this sermon, you are committing yourself to a different way of life. You're committing yourself to slavery, to Christ, and to His way. And yes, it can be hard, right? The way of Christ is a way of a cross, of picking up your cross and following Him. It requires continued submission. must like an obedient slave or servant, constantly stands at the beck and call of his or her master. But here's the glorious reality. (laughs) What if your master is the one who's actually uh, has freed you from the cruel, unforgiving taskmaster of sin? What if your master is not himself cruel and unforgiving, but merciful and gracious? The one who does in your weakness extend you a hand? What if your master, as Paul later, he shifts his metaphor a little bit later in the book of Romans to this amazing image of adoption, what if you're not just a servant or a slave, but what if the master actually adopted you as one of his own children? and made you a son, a daughter, an heir alongside the Son with his kingdom. What if that's who you really are in this great master's house, that you actually, like the Son, now live to glorify the Father? Jesus, who was our perfect obedience, our perfect righteousness, shows us exactly the way to live joyfully in that Father's house. And so we can follow confidently and not see servanthood or slavery to righteousness as just the slavery of do's and don'ts, but it's walking in the joy of a new relationship and a new status before God. So whenever you sin in this new life, you confess your sin joyfully. You can't wait to hand it back to the only one who can actually handle it. You can't wait to come back into obedience. And you ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and mind for other places where you can yield more sin and have more freedom. You see, freedom here is not freedom in order to sin more, but to have more righteousness you are then reaffirming the pattern here of life and grace not death and sin you see you and me we're only sinaholics saved by grace and continually in need of more of that grace to live the life that we truly want let me conclude this morning and illustrate this point with another wonderful pastoral moment that the Lord blessed me with a few years ago. Um, One of the great uh, ministries that I just delight in here at Resurrection is on uh, Ash Wednesday or Good Friday of hearing confessions. I'm telling you, when a repentant sinner comes to lay their sin burden down before the Lord, the Lord always shows up, and it's awesome. I love it. (laughs) And this one time, a person came to me, and I I actually asked their permission so that I could share vague details of their story. (laughs) They came to me for confession. And indeed, though they were one of Christ's own, they had been walking in a deep path of sin in a part of their life. And as we explored this together, prayed into it, uh, repented of it, laid it before the Lord, there was something spectacular that really happened. Something special clicked in this person's life. And for a period of a few weeks or months after that, I met regularly with this person because, you know, once you're free from the burden of sin, it can be tempting to go back to it because you feel like, oh, forgiveness is always there. So there was some strengthening that went on over those days and weeks ahead. But here's the wonderful conclusion in this story. A few weeks ago, I got together with this person again. Where we've not had routine pastoral meetings for accountability and a checkup, instead, this person told me, he said, Father Steve, you realize when I came to confession that day, I laid that sin down, and I've never picked it up again. And there was just joy, this just supernatural glow about this dear brother in Christ who knew truly what it is to walk in the freedom of righteousness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.